of comfort waiting for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, that's where we're headed. Let's ask the Lord for his blessing. Now, Father God, as we bring our hearts, our weary hearts to you this morning, we've just been through a lot, many of us in this very room, some more than others, and yet we all find ourselves in need of the comfort, the assurance, the love of God, the one who made us. Lord, so fill that God-shaped void in our hearts today with your word, your living word. Breathe upon us uh, new life, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Thinking back on your life, what was the most comforting moment that you can recall? Maybe you suffered some sort of loss or some traumatic uh, fear or anxiety uh, came your way, but in spite of it and through it or because of it, also came this overwhelming comfort. You got a memory like that? I do. You know why I do? Because I'm the one who knows the questions ahead of time. <laughs> so, so I'm prepared on this one, let me tell you. So winter... December, I was 10 years old. New England was already blanketed with uh, dazzling white and snow and ice everywhere. The pond behind our house had recently frozen over. And late one afternoon, I went out back there and I just thought, wow, look at that sheet of ice. It was so inviting to walk on water, you know, <laughs> to walk out there. And so, of course, I took a few steps, and, and thankfully just a few steps, but I was out, um, and uh, the sound of the ice giving way, I can remember it to this day, and I plunged into the most freezing cold water I have ever experienced. And it was only waist high, but I had fallen in. So I, I had submerged and uh, the breath was completely taken out of me. And so, I, you know, I, I survived. <laughs> uh, we got home. The flannel jammies came out and my mom took a wash basin and filled it with hot water for my feet to soak while I was wrapped in the thickest, most wonderful, softest comforter in the whole wide world. And I sat there. There was some music, Christmas music playing. And uh, everybody was being so nice and sweet. You know, I remember thinking, I want this to happen again. <laughs> Because the comfort of the moment, really, the physical relief, not only was a warmness spreading out through my extremities, but there was an emotional warmness in my heart. I was safe from that traumatic fate of drowning underneath some ice. And, and so really, the emotional comfort of the moment sort of softened the trauma and the comfort became a more important part of the story than the actual crisis. And I think that is what Paul had in mind here, the Holy Spirit inspiring him, that the Holy Spirit wants to convey, convey to us the same sort of idea. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. 
For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ, our comfort overflows. If we're distressed, is for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we know that just as you share in our suffering, so also you share in our comfort. So here, here's the crisis that caused this comfort. Now, verse 8. Verse 8. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardship we have been suffering through the province of Asia, that is modern-day Turkey. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, our hearts, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. And on him, we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. So that, my friends, is the entirety of the text that we are going to be talking about this morning. And so we can just kind of leave that up there for a moment while I fill you in on some context because we haven't been to Corinth in a while, right? So the gospel came to Europe some five years earlier than this writing. Paul was on his second missionary journey, you remember, uh, with a few uh, fellow missionaries. We're 20 years out from the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, the guys came to Corinth, which is a city that's about 50 miles west of Athens. And the remains and the ancient ruins are still there to this day. Corinth was a thriving church filled with life and filled with troubles. And so Paul is going to talk first in 1 Corinthians about their troubles and how God is working in the godly, wise, biblical way to handle your troubles so that God can work with you to bring comfort. So that's 1 Corinthians, his second letter filled with trouble about his life and the missionaries in their service to God, all the struggles that they have gone through. And here's what he's saying. The thesis statement for 2 Corinthians is this. Listen, uh, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. In other words, how God works in his people in the pews, as it were, when they're going through hard times. Uh, God is also at work in leaders and Christian pastors and, and the things that they suffer. But the bottom line, the thesis statement for this second letter is this, that in your troubles, God is always faithful to comfort you just exactly what you need, to, and in fact, to overflowing with the purpose that you, once you've been encouraged, will encourage with what God has provided you, others. This is the thesis statement. Now, to grasp this is to speed along your recovery. If you're in grief this morning, and you want to get better fast, that you want to know what God expects from you to cooperate in your time of grief. There are cooperative ways to deal when you're in trouble, and there are uncooperative ways that prolong your suffering, prolong the restoration progress, because he has to deal with those. And so if ever there was an important text, it's meant let's get our... Uh, minds straight on how we should suffer biblically as Christians who, who profess Christ as Lord. We believe in a heaven and a God who's working all things together for good. So this text divides quite nicely. It splits right in half. First, it's all about the comfort. And then he wants to talk about the crisis that prompted God to bring that comfort. So first, the comfort God provides in uh, verses 3 through 7 here. I want you to guess what he's trying to get through to you by a recurring word. Ready? 
Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God, just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives. So also through Christ, our comfort overflows. If we're distressed, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we're, com if we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which produces <laughs> in you patience and endurance. And it goes on until the last, so also you share in our comfort. Now, Paul didn't have a stuttering problem. <laughs> he really didn't, though it sounds like he may have. But when God repeats something, uh, my Bible teachers used to say, God is highlighting He's underlining, he's trying to say, pay attention because God is the source of the comfort that you so desperately need. So let's dive into this comfort. No surprise to me that he's, he wants to praise God right from the beginning because it's not about the problem. Who's the star of the testimony? Who's the star of the show? The star of the show is the good news. And the good news is that even though the fire, even though the loss, even though the death, we have an eternal hope in God. We have a God that is going to give us the comfort and the strength that we need to get through this. So, of course, it starts with praise to God because it's God. That's our story. Our story isn't about, whoa, you know, you know nobody knows the troubles I've seen, you know. <laughs> that is not our song. We have a different song. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior. Go ahead. You've heard that hymn. That's our story. So, of course, it starts out glorifying God and the blessing and the gratitude for all God has done. Through it, yes, we grieve. Yes, we don't pretend we're not hurting or disappointed and all of that. That's normal. But he says, we grieve in a different kind of way than the world that doesn't know God and just thinks after you die, that's it. We don't grieve like that. That's the ugly cry, right? We don't have an ugly cry because we have a beautiful hope. We have a savior who's saying, watch what I can do. And so he wants to start talking about this. One writer said, beware of believers who always seem to be drowning in their sorrows, lest that same perspective overtake you as well. So he's not saying we're not genuinely hurt and grieve. We do. We, we grieve with those who grieve. But we have to cooperate with our own faith that says God is bigger, God is stronger, God is working through this. My friends, this is not heaven. We're not in heaven yet. We expect we accept Christ and, and, and everything turns into like problem-free, stress-free, like heaven. No, 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 no. This is fallen earth. This is the train wreck from which we are being extricated by the grace of God, lifted up, raised up, and, and taken out so that we can enjoy heaven, the paradise of God, where there is neither crying or mourning or, or, or weeping of any kind of that order because the, then the former old ways of doing life have been passed away, he says. And so, yeah, Paul will detail all of the troubles. He's, he wants to tell you about the near-death experience. It's not we live in denial. It's just who's the star of the show. That's it. Some, some one writer said, some testimonies you hear make one wonder Who's the intended star of the story? The trouble, the victim, or the Lord? And with Paul, there's never a question. So Paul will use the crisis to glorify God. Let me tell you, I came near death, but God. And then a whole list of the ways God used the hardship. So it's never a self-pity party. He never mentions his hardships. Chapter 11, there's a list. But it's always as an aside to minister, to glorify God, 
to help somebody else. Never with inordinate attention drawn to himself and never painting God in any kind of unsavory light. Sometimes you hear in a testimony, you know, I'm talking now to Christians. Christians, you know, not a subtle little reference to how God let you down or didn't answer your prayers or this kind of thing. He does answer our prayers every single time. And a no is an answer to prayer because God says, you don't see five years from now. You don't know how I'm going to use this for good. Somebody told me this morning her house burned down. She's here today. She told me, our house burned down. My husband has, is an atheist. And he's starting to soften his heart and wants to go to church and these kinds of things. He's open. Yeah. And she said, if that took the house going down to see my husband come to faith, she says, bring it on. Amen. <laughs> bring it on. You don't know who she is. She's right there in that general vicinity. All right. So everybody's like, I'm not telling you anything. <laughs> All right. So Paul's telling us, uh, hey, he's saying, I've just been through this harrowing, life-threatening ordeal. But let me start by praising God. The word there, eulogizing, where we get the word to to speak well of somebody. So just I want to tell you, God, two things about God. I want to give him a title, two new titles, Paul says. He is the father of compassion. That word means mercy, sympathy. And let me tell you the difference between, as a former English teacher, the difference between sympathy and empathy. Sympathy is where you share the feelings of the person and you act on shared emotion, shared experience. That's sympathy. Empathy is that you understand their feelings and you respond, but you didn't necessarily feel the same thing. You didn't share the experience. Let me assure you, he is the father of sympathetic love because our father lost his only begotten son. You want to talk about the fires of earth? You want to talk about a loss? Who has grieved a loss but the son of God, equal to God in every way, letting them strip him bare, pull out his beard, whip his back, crown his head with thorns. At any second, he could have batted an eyelash. And it all would have been over. But he said, nobody takes my life. I came for this purpose to lay down my life as an offering. Put all of their sins on me, the perfect sinless son of God, and take your wrath out on them via me. And the lightning bolt of God the Father's compassion, the Father of all mercy, takes the life of his only begotten son, the second person of the Godhead. Why? Out of mercy, out of sympathy. So when you call out, God, I've lost everything, he says, oh, this is a kind of comfort that has been seasoned in the fire itself because the hands that reach out to hug you, my friend, have scars. They have scars. So this isn't the force up there somewhere, you know, just saying, oh, be of good cheer, you know. Everything will be all right with thy life, you know. No, no, no. This is somebody who became one of us, the God-man. And so he is the God of compassion. You know, when it says to be the father of Compassion. He's saying he's the he's the inventor. He's the manufacturer. Uh, he's the distributor of this. He's the go-to place for the thing that you're looking for. When you say he's the father of, he's all about love and mercy. Martha Stewart. She's all about what? She's all about baking and food. Uh, Tom Tom Brady. He's all about. Hello. Uh, this is a conversation. Come on. Tom Brady's all about. Right, and, and God our Father's all about compassion and comfort. Then he says, by the way, he's the, he's the Father of compassion. He's the God of all comfort. What an interesting word. 
The God of all comfort means he's the paraclesis in the Greek. It is closely related to his very own name. The name of the third person of the Godhead, the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, listen, Last Supper, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send you a comforter, a parakletos, right from the same word as comforter. Here's what it means. Para means to come alongside. Kletos means to be summoned to help. So he's not just giving you some pious words, you know, chin up. He's saying, I'm going to send you a tangible presence called the Spirit of Christ himself. And he says, I don't want you to miss this, so I'm going to name him the Comforter, the one alongside. And so that's the promise there. He says, so this is our God. He's got the corner market on everything you need (laughs) spiritually, mercy, compassion, love. And and here's this incredible implication for sufferers. He's saying, Deuteronomy 33 says it beautifully, verse 25, as your strength will equal your days. But the beginning of that verse says, the bolts of your gates will be iron and bronze. And then he says, but your strength will equal your days. In other words, whatever your specialized problem, your trouble, your trial, whatever that is that's barring you right now with iron and bronze, he's saying, no worry, whatever comes your way, God will send the grace to break those bars free in your life. So here's what he's saying here. The God of all comfort. He brings if you're at an eight, he brings an eight. If you're at a nine, he'll bring in nine. If you're in a 12 out of 10, he says, no worries. I can count forever. I'll go as high as you need. So in other words, the depth of your comfort is commensurate with the depth of your need. Every single time. <laughs> Name a need that God Almighty can't fix. Even death. He says, no problem. I say to you, little girl, arise. And the dead girl sits up, and he scoops her up and gives her back to mom and dad. He says, with God, all things are possible. Whatever your pain, whatever your sorrow, whatever your bitter cup right now, he says, I'll sweeten it. I can handle this. I'm God. I spoke, and the world leapt into existence. He says, I created heaven and earth. Is there anything too difficult for me? That's a quote from him to us. And the answer is no. So our, our, our fears are, are quieted by his love. Our lack is met with his provision. Our unsettledness is blanketed with peace. Temptation is countered with power. Loss is filled with gain. He's just saying, look, that's, that's who I am. So, so Paul says, for this, I praise God. But wait, there's more, he says. Look at verse 4. He says, it's nice to get my needs met in an immediate way, and he does that, right? But he has a purpose. It's not just for me. He meets my way, and so that there's an overflow, he goes so over the top with ministering to me that he expects me to help others. And so he's saying, my distress and comfort is going to benefit you. And that's beautiful. To experience God's comfort in the midst of your troubles obligates you, and you become indebted and equipped to share and pass along to pay it forward. And if you don't catch that, you're going to hinder God from helping you. If it's all about you and you're kind of a closed circuit person and you're hurting and and here's what I need only, you know, that's not how he works. He says, yes, I know you're hurting. Yes, I'm going to give you this, but I want you to share. I want you to open up and from the encouragement you get, be willing to be an encouragement to others. That's what verse four is all about. And we see that happening all the time. Listen, we're saved to save. You know, you can't just say, phew, I missed out on hell. You know, oh, happy day, and then go on living your life. 
You are saved with an obligation that everybody in your natural sphere of influence needs to know, A, there's a God, B, there's a heaven to gain, C, there's a hell to avoid. You, you, you just didn't slip in and get blessed for the sake of blessing you alone, even to Abraham. In Genesis 12, he says, I'm going to bless your socks off, Abraham. Like nobody else in the whole world, I'm going to make you and your people blessed so that you can bless the entire world through you. You see, it's always like that. Enriched to share, gifted. You think <laughs> if you have a gift or a special ability, do you think that's just to promote yourself? A lot of people in the world have used the, their God-given gift to, as a platform for them. But he says, oh, that's not why I gave it to you. I, I gave it to you to honor me and to help my people, you see? So even gifts work that way. He gives us to use that. Now, interesting, chapter 8, this kind of equality he's talking about, that our comfort is an other-centered approach that we give out what God is giving us. Check this out. In chapter 8, there's a disaster relief program that Paul's initiating. So what, here's what's happening. In Jerusalem, they have a, a drought and they have an economic downturn. And the Jewish Christians who started this whole thing are in need, desperate need. Now, the Gentiles who come after, who have benefited from the Jewish Christians, right, and the Old Testament and the Bible and all of this, they have an economic upturn and they're doing well. So Paul says, this isn't right, man. Let's show the Jewish Christians back home uh, that we want to help them with their disaster, disaster relief. So he's taking an offering. So here's what he says. And, and think about how this fits us because there's a lot of offerings, a lot of donations for disaster relief people. So here's what Paul says. He says about the offering, he says, I'm not meaning to cause you givers to be hard-pressed while those who receive those funds are tempted to be lazy or to uh, use them to live in excessive luxury at your expense of giving to them. He says, no, 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 that's not what's going on. And then he quotes from Exodus 16 about manna. Now, here's what he says, and then I'll explain it. He says, no, it's equitable, this giving and disaster time. Here's what he says. He says, those who gathered a lot had exactly what they needed, and those who gathered only a little had just enough. Here's what he's talking about. With manna, you know, they're out wandering in the wilderness. God said, look, you know, I got to teach you a few lessons for 40 years. I'll provide the food, right? So he rained down on them bread, essentially, right? Here's the deal. You could only gather so much. If you hoarded it, <laughs> it would rot, and you, they would find, and I'm just quoting the Bible, maggots in it. So you couldn't greedily say, I'm going to go out, and I'm going to be the hardest worker, and I'm going to gather all the manna in the whole world. It's all coming to me, right? It didn't work that way. Those who didn't gather a lot had enough, and those who gathered a lot and were industrious had what they needed. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, because Christians are other-centered and care about their brothers and their sisters in need, that the equitable sharing of when God blesses and brings comfort provides nobody, even those who did it, you know, by even God, God's own design, didn't gather uh, much. In other words, that everybody's full Everybody has something to eat. Everybody's tummy is filled. And it's a very equitable thing. That's what he's saying. Um, listen, the Dead Sea is dead for a reason. All right? It's a nice place to visit. You'll visit there in March, a hundred or so of you. It is a cool thing to, to lay down in a body of water with your feet up and your hands up too. And no flotation device. It's really weird, just like... I'm floating in this water. It's really cool. Except everything in it is dead. 
poisonous. You won't find any fishies in there except if they're floating dead on the surface. Why? The Dead Sea recedes from the Jordan, from the top of Syria, all the way down through Israel. It just pours in, pours in, and it goes nowhere. And because it doesn't have an outlet, and all it does is soak up, soak up, soak up. Everything in it is dead. It can't nurture life. It's a great illustration of what he's talking about. He's saying we don't just get comforted for ourselves. We're connected. No one lives unto themselves alone, and no one dies unto themselves alone. If you're a Christian, your troubles, your resources, your life, your comfort, everything is an other-centered approach. You're well taken care of. He doesn't say that we need to strip ourselves of all of our resources. If we did, we'd have no way to support ourselves, and we would need to be cared for. He's saying being mindful of the way God blesses us to uh, let that blessing come in and let it go out. Other-centered mentality, we all have to have it. So um, I've been witnessing this around here. Listen, it's happening. People who get special prayer, they're praying for people. People who have been shown hospitality are opening up their own homes and showing hospitality as well. People receiving funds are giving monies back. Now, just because somebody has insurance doesn't mean they're not hurting, right? And so we're listening to people, and you'd be surprised that people are being equitable and generous and with what they're receiving there's an overflow and the stories they're they're beautiful i have not heard one negative unbiblical way of handling this from one person i've gone through hundreds hundreds of emails hundreds of uh, phone calls and texts these last three weeks and i'm telling you what i'm proud of the work god is doing here and i'm proud of how we're responding as a church praise the lord amen so what i like i like verse six that just says you want to talk other centered oh no it's not just when you're blessed but he says if we're distressed that's for you too We are so connected to one another that not only do you need to steward your blessings because God wants to work that blessing into some other life, but you have to be a good steward of your trial and your trouble because that was designed ultimately by God to help somebody else along the way. Oh, we never think about that. And let me just tell you, listen, there's financial struggles marriage difficulties, when you're victimized or betrayed or you lose a loved one or you go through a fire. When somebody else is saying to you, you don't know what it means or feels like to to lose everything you've worked so hard for and you say, yes, I do. You see, your distress, when you handle it properly and you get a little distance from it, It's going to be used to encourage somebody else who's following behind you as you model grace under fire. Follow me as I follow Christ through the fire, through the loss of a child, through through many dangerous toils and snares, right? So he's saying, if we're distressed, I just know he's teaching me something to benefit you. So he's teaching me patience, which you'll, you'll benefit from. He's teaching me to uh, be sympathetic. God, God help you if you've got a pastor who's never gone through a dry spell, spiritually speaking. Those kinds of guys, just to, you know, and you talk about a dry spell. I'm not feeling anything. I open my Bible. I'm not feeling anything. Well, if you're honest, if, if he's honest, I would say I know exactly how you feel. God uses our difficulties to encourage other people. I'm telling you what, there's a mama here today who lost her son, 38-year-old son, right? Listen, I know a couple who lost their son about the same age. And there will be nobody on earth who can minister to her like that couple. 
Now, it doesn't mean that we all have to go through every last thing before we're useful to God. But it, he is saying the distress that you're going through, he's going to line up in some future way, not only good for you, there's a countless ways he's working in you through it, but there are also, and this is what you forget, there are countless ways he's going to use it for somebody else. In the lobby today, a guy is facing a second cancer surgery. His first tests were bad. He had the cancer surgery. Everything looked good. And then the report came back bad. So he's going back in. He's here today as well. And so I grabbed him and, and, and I said, check this out. And I pulled my shirt. It has a long scar where they took five cancerous lymph nodes out of me. Right? So we can compare scars and, and, yeah, he wasn't into that, by the way. <laughs> I'm crazy. I already know that. You know, I'm a little overly animated. Yes, I'm like, look at that. Whoops. It's <laughs> a button. <laughs> if I had the same sort of surgery, and by the way, I had chemotherapy, I had radiation, and then I got tested. I had already gone back to work. I had already left disability. I was already on the new road to recovery. And bam, a bad, a bad PET scan. So I had to go back in. That's exactly what just happened to him. Now, little did I know that God's saying, hold on. I'm going to use this for this guy who's going to be really encouraged and not just there. You will always get to say through your bankruptcy, through your betrayal, through whatever it is, that it has meaning. Instead of just wanting it to disappear and God save me from it, and it's a terrible thing, God's saying, I'm working in you a few things, and I'm going to use this for others to model after you. Widows, there's a recent widow here. Well, I mean, we've got five widows that I can sick on her at any moment of the day. <laughs> and they will cover her. And I'll tell you what, it's, it's, you just receive better that way. Amen? Yeah. I think you get what I'm trying to say here. Let's move on. Kind of bleeds into the same idea. He says, just so you know... <laughs> How serious it was, you know, we almost died. So he says, listen, there was a reason God let it get that bad, too, because I had a lesson to learn. Paul the Apostle said, this happened. God let it get so bad that I had no other lifeline. So guess what? I had to trust in God. So he says, thank you for praying. And so let's look at that a little closer. So here's what he's saying. Just so you know, FYI, I'm speaking from experience when, you know, when somebody tells you, you know, they're trying to encourage you in your troubles, but, you know, they were kind of born with a silver spoon in their mouth and they've got perfect health. It's just kind of uh, harder to receive, as I've been saying. But Paul's saying, listen, I'm trying to comfort you and for you to have positive thoughts and great, to be grateful to God when I almost just died. And there was no help. And we were abandoned. So much so, I said, uh, we're dead. He just says in the text, we just looked at each other and said, see you in heaven. But God stepped in. So let's talk about that. That's pretty exciting. And so the word here, under great pressure, means utterly, unbearably crushed. Verse 8, forced to renounce all hope of surviving. And he uses a rare word here for despaired. It means quite um, literally, no way out, no exit, no door out, no lifeline. Unavailability of an exit from an oppressive situation. So verse 9, he says, it was as if somebody handed me a death sentence with no reprieve. We were just waiting for the two minutes on the clock for, for it to happen. But that's not the end of the story. He says, we serve an amazing God. 
And he says, when we got to the end of our rope, we were like, rope, 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 and there's nothing left. There's nothing left here. What do I do now? What do I do now? Oh, we're all going to die. And then God goes, then he looks to God. God, you're our only hope now. If not for a miraculous intervention of God, we're lost. And then God goes, finally, you got to that place. Finally, he says, we got to a place where I couldn't call FEMA. I couldn't call, I couldn't call a doctor. The meds stopped working. The police, I called 911 and they put me on hold. You know, all of these things, you get to that place once in a while. And he says, God had to allow that happen in me because I was still looking to earthly and worldly lifelines. The Apostle Paul, 13 New Testament books. He's saying, I had to be schooled. I had to learn a lesson. Look, it's a lesson. This happened. This, he's saying, there's a direct cause for me being in a lethal situation. God said, I'm going to use this. I got to burn out a few of your false uh, saviors, your little idol friends that you're still hanging on to. The Apostle Paul but he will get you in a place where <laughs> you got no lifelines. So that's why I like to roll out of bed in the morning and just say, just so you know, God, you are my only hope. <laughs> you are my only hope. You don't have to teach me that because I've got, <laughs> I got that lesson down, you know? And so if I do call 911 or if I do need an ambulance or I know whatever I need and God uses all those things, those things are okay as long as I know God is blessing, God is orchestrating, God is my savior and not those things because if those things are, he will show you how weak and futile it is to trust in man. And now, you know, for me, I'm curious, what was it that brought them to such a terrible place that he says, we just gave up on living. We all looked at each other. We're dead. What was it? Well, if you do a little digging, you find out things. First of all, he leaves it vague for a reason. So that one size fits all. So that this truth, no matter what we're facing that threatens us from with death, I should say, uh, will fit. It'll work, right? So instead of just saying, so you know how we are, we'll just say, oh, that's that situation. No, it's left general for a purpose. But I want to know, what do you think it could be? Well, I'll tell you what I think it is. I mean, he was shipwrecked and clinging to planks for a day and a half in the open sea. Was that it? Uh, I don't think so. I th I've got a better one. He was, uh, he received uh, 40 lashes minus one five times. Was it one of those times he just said, this is it, I've lost too much blood? Could be. Um, remember in Ephesus, he, there was an angry mob and they, you know, the idol factory lost a lot of money and they got mad because he's preaching the gospel that said you don't need idols. So the people stopped buying idols. So the owner of the idol shop instigated this murderous mob, and they almost killed him. Was it then? No. I don't think. I'm just guessing. Here's my guess. A curious line in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, we fought off, we defended ourselves from wild beasts in Ephesus, which is Turkey. What does he mean by that? Well, I'm going to hazard a guess here. Well, commentators say the language reminds us of what was going on in the Colosseums there. They were throwing Christians and instigators like Paul the Apostle into the Colosseums and releasing the hungry lions. And so what do you do when, when the doors open up and you're standing there and out come lions that haven't been fed for a month? 911, what's your emergency? <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you don't fill out a form with FEMA. I mean, this is, I, I mean, oh, and by the way, can I go to that FEMA thing? I've changed FEMA for you. F, 
Father of all comfort. E, ever-present help in trouble. M, mercy overflowing. A, almighty God. Amen. Amen. That's your FEMA, folks. All right. We could go back to the story. All right. I got a thing with like four people clapping. So when we, when we clap, we just all got to clap. So let's just... Doesn't that feel better? A whole lot less cheesy on this end. So. so they look around at each other and say, what do we do now? And God says, I'm going to make the, hung, the, the lions have indigestion right now. <laughs> and the lions come up and sniff and turn up their noses and walk away. He says, the Lord says, listen, I'm good with lions. <laughs> Daniel chapter 3. You know, we've been through the lions thing. All right, I keep their mouths shut. And, and this kind of thing happened all the time. John the Apostle. They tried, this is a Roman historian, Tacitus, telling the story. John, the apostle, they tried to boil him in oil in a Colosseum. He comes back up and says, what next? <laughs> he doesn't die. And so half the Colosseum, the historian says, became born-again Christians in that moment. So what do you do with a guy you can't kill, right? You send him off to Patmos, right? And, where, and if you send him off to Patmos, what happens? God gives him the book of Revelation. You, you know, so here's what, uh, here's, so my, my guess is, is that they're standing there, the lions come up and God delivers them. They all thought they were going to die. And what a terrible death. But he says, I'm here to tell you, not about the lions. See, I like this. He doesn't even want to talk about it. Doesn't want him to look big and bold and wonderful. I'm here to tell you about a God who when you are at the end of your rope and there's no place to go, he steps in and saves the day and raises you up as if from the dead. And one day he'll do that very thing. And so, yeah, the, these are the beautiful things about being a Christian. And so, um, you know, whatever threatens you, whatever comes your way, he says, I like verse 10 as we close up now. He says, check this out. God has delivered us, past. He's presently delivering us, helping us. And by the way, in the future, he's going to help us again. He's going to bail me out. He has bailed me out. He's bailing me out, and he will bail me out. Why does he need to say that? A, because even if your house burned down, you're going to have more trouble. We pray to God it's not as severe. But you will. And the same God who's getting you through today has said, use my past faithfulness that has gotten you through a lot of stuff. Use that, cling to that as his word, his bond, that he will never forsake you, never leave you, and anything in the future, whatever it is up to death, he will bail you out even from the grave. That's what he's saying there. There's something about Christians that when the next trial or trouble comes in, we forget about all God's goodness in the past. There's so many things to point to. Do you know how many people say, I should be dead right now? I mean, God has really blessed his people. But the, the, the struggle is, in the moment of the uh, threat, for you to remember. So he's just saying, listen, the God who got you through it before is getting you through it today. He will be there for you uh, tomorrow. I love what he says at the end of his life. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack. And will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory and honor forever. There's one day God is just going to say okay. And he's going to lift the restraint around you. And it's time for you to be in his presence. We all have a number of days. Right? There's no such thing as an untimely death. For a Christian. Because he says our footsteps are numbered and it's precious to him. 
when we come to see him and enter into a reward, right? But let me just say this, and this is what the text is teaching. You are indestructible before your God-given time. That's what he's saying. Whatever you need and meet, whatever you're going through, sufficient will be the comfort to overflow so that God will work something good in you and you will be able to share it with others. And the last thought is, thank you for praying because when I was standing, I'm elaborating a little bit here, as I was standing in the Colosseum and the doors open, let's say, and the hungry lions came out, you were praying for me. He had prayer partners, man. Those Philippians, they adored him. They were sending him offerings over and over again, he says. You know Lydia and, and the jailer and his family, the fortune teller who, who got, was demonized and then became set free by the gospel. Those folks kept Paul in their prayers and he says, because you prayed, God heard, and I'm standing there going, well, no more lifelines. And God says, someone's praying for you. Bam. That ought to change the way you think about prayer. <laughs> you know, you think, you know, oh my, God's not listening to me. Yes, he is. The prayer of somebody who's put right with God is powerful and effective. James chapter 5, verse 17. I'm going to say it again to you. The prayer of one person who's put right with God is powerful and effective. It will change things. So much so that he says, the reason I'm writing to you and not with the Lord is because you prayed and God heard and God did something. So what? Here, here it comes again. It's an us thing. It's a shared victory thing. We share in our troubles. We share in the grace that he comforts us with. We share in our prayers together. So at the end of the day, we get together and we all have a reason to thank God. Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I'm just so thankful for your great love. It's just a wonder <laughs> that people like us can have a God so good like you. You, you overlook our... our uh, our weaknesses. You overlook our, our sin because you paid for it. As we confess it to you, you're faithful and just. You cleanse us because you paid for it. So thank you for that kind of love. Thank you for working through terrible, terrible things, which our hearts are still just shocked over. But in our shock, minister to our hearts that we can be comforted and pass it along. In Christ's name, amen. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.